are listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor and teaching elder, Adam Vincent. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just to give a quick recap over what we were able to see in chapter 1. Chapter 1 involves Paul praising God for answered prayer. That the, the Thessalonian believers are growing in their faith, increasing in their love, continuing to persevere through difficult times, just like he prayed for in 1 Thessalonians. So now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, Paul is praising God and, and thanking him for that answered prayer, that these believers are growing in their faith. They're, they're increasing in their faith. They're increasing in their love. They're persevering despite persecution. Paul goes on to explain that this perseverance is a, is a sign of their true salvation. That they're demonstrating that they are worthy of the kingdom. That God has passed a righteous judgment on them. That they are truly Christians. Because the only thing that makes sense for them to persevere through this difficulty is that the Holy Spirit's indwelling them. Anybody else would have fallen away. Anybody else would have turned from Christ. We look at the parable of the sower and the seed. Uh, plants that get choked out, burned up. They don't, they don't take root. That's not what these believers are. They're true believers. They're persevering. They're not getting choked out by the things of this world. They didn't fall on rocky ground to where they couldn't take root. And then when things got tough, they they turned away. These guys are genuine believers. And Paul is praising God and thanking God for that. But he also offers them them encouragement. In verses 5 through 12, he reminds them that Jesus is coming back to make things right. That Jesus will come in all his glory to bring affliction upon those that have been afflicting these believers and to bring relief to those that have been afflicted. So Jesus comes in all his glory at the second coming to make things right, to set things right. And that offers encouragement to this body of believers. Now we come to chapter 2, though, and I believe Paul gives us some some more detailed understanding about what he's talking about in chapter 1. Chapter 1, he kind of kept it close to home. Jesus is going to come back and bring affliction to your afflictors, those that are afflicting you right now. Now Paul's going to give us a glimpse into the future again and, and show us a little bit about how the time's going to play out right before Jesus comes back. And, and he gives some detail for the specific purpose of correcting some wrong understanding, correcting some wrong teaching that have been circulating for this church. We're going to start off by reading verses 1 through 12. The way that Paul lays this out, it's hard to, it's definitely impossible to teach this entire passage in in one Sunday. We're certainly not going to attempt to do that. It's also hard to come up with a systematic outline that works through just the first few verses because Paul kind of jumps around between future and present, future and present. So I'm going to break it up in a way that um, hopefully will allow us to get all of what Paul is trying to communicate to this church. My hope today is to kind of spoil the ending and give you the overall focus, the overall picture of what uh, Paul wants to communicate to this church. And then we're going to look at it a little bit more in detail, starting with one aspect this week and then hopefully looking at two more next week. We look in verse 1, though, together to start. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word 
or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do not remember that when I was, with, was still with you, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This passage is is traditionally, typically understood to be um, one of the most descriptive passages on the Antichrist. Now, the term Antichrist is not even found in this passage, uh, but it's widely accepted that who Paul is talking about here is the Antichrist mentioned in Scripture. Now, a little bit of trivia. Where is the term Antichrist found in Scripture? It's only found in First John. So Antichrist is not found in Revelation. It's not found in Daniel. That term is relegated to First John. Um, and only... Two or three times is, is he mentioned in First John. So that title, John chooses to use that term, that phrase. Um, but there are uh, allusions to this coming leader, this coming evil one, that I think it's fair to say is the same that, what, that, that is being mentioned in First John. Um, I think there's allusions to that in Daniel, potentially allusions to that in Revelation. And I would say here, um, in the clear type of writing that Paul is doing here, not apocalyptic, not vague, not coded, not cryptic type language. I mean, he's just writing a letter to a church. I think we can say that, that what he's talking about here is the same one that First John is predicting that is coming as well. There's some difficulty that we're going to have in understanding this passage together. Here's the difficulty. One is that I'm going to have the task of trying to teach this to you when I've studied extensively for it and you perhaps haven't studied at all for it. Um, I know some of you have probably done some study on the end times and specifically maybe some has, has even studied about the Antichrist. But I would say the large part in here has probably never really looked at it on their own. You may have a concept and understanding on what you've heard, movies that you've seen, whatever that might look like. But most of us probably haven't spent a whole lot of time searching this out in Scripture. This week alone, I probably spent 10 hours in front of the Bible trying to understand what is going on in this passage. That doesn't count the time that I spent just meditating on it, thinking about it as I was driving around. That's, that's not normal for me to do that 
during a week for a normal sermon. This passage is a difficult passage to understand because there's a lot of speculation that surrounds it. So that's one difficulty, is that I've got to figure out a way how to not just come in and dump all this information on y'all and it not do anything because you're so confused by the end of it because you haven't been able to study it like I have. The other difficulty that we're going to have in understanding this is that we are missing what we would say is a pretty significant thing. Obviously, God doesn't feel like it's, it's that significant for us, but it does pose difficulties for us understanding this. If you look in verse 5, Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? We are missing the oral teaching of Paul on this topic. Paul mentioned this, mentions this in reality very briefly. I mean, we're talking 12 verses on the Antichrist, the, the, the most evil, wicked leader that our world will ever know. Paul sees fit to mention 12 verses about it and doesn't give a whole lot of detail about it. In fact, when he talks about what's restraining the Antichrist right now, he doesn't feel the need to elaborate on it at all. says, um, verse 6, you know what's restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Well, unfortunately, we don't know that information. Um, Paul had already taught this. Paul had already communicated this. He had already spent probably extensive time teaching them about the end times. And now it's just a review. I mean, we spent weeks and weeks and weeks talking about chapter 1. I did a two-minute review right here before we started today. That's what Paul's doing here. He's giving a review on something that he has talked about extensively. We don't have that oral teaching. It's like eavesdropping on an important conversation and only picking up bits and pieces of it and trying to put together a big understanding of what they were talking about. So there's some difficulty, which means we're going to have to be content at some times to not get answers to our questions because Paul doesn't answer them for us in this passage. Um, he doesn't see fit to include that information. So those are two difficulties that we're going to have here. And I'm going to try to proceed with caution as much as I can in helping us all to come to an understanding of this passage. Um, just some initial application that I wrote down in my notes. I told you that I try to do this every time I'm studying. Um, some things that really just kind of jumped out to me that I wanted to give to you guys. Um, there is a current and coming deception to guard against. There is a current and coming deception that is very real that we must be on guard against. Paul describes the fact that there is a man of lawlessness that is coming to lead this world into deception. Into a type of deception that this world has never known before. But he also says you need to be aware that that, that mystery, that spirit of what he's going to do is already at work. There's already deception taking place. There's already false teaching taking place. There's already a rebellion, uh, an apostasy taking place. There's already people that are falling away from the faith right now. So he's saying you need to be on guard right now. Even if you don't live to see that time of the Antichrist, you need to recognize that, that his spirit, what he's going to do one day is already at work. Satan is already starting the process of getting this ball rolling on this great deception that will one day come upon this earth. So there's a current deception that we need to be on guard against and potentially a future more serious deception that we need to be on guard against. 
Next. Paul didn't expect his disciples to trust that it will all work out. He recognized his disciples needed to believe rightly or possibly perish. You understand that Paul didn't leave this with his new disciples as something that, hey, we're not going to get into the we're not going to get into end times just yet. That we'll get into that maybe down the road. It's a little difficult to understand. What I want to really focus on with you right now is this, 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 and this. No, when Paul's making disciples, he says we got to go to the end times immediately. Like you've got to understand what is coming in the future if you're going to persevere till the end. He puts high value on an eschatological understanding by his disciples. And I'm afraid we still fail to see the seriousness of that. We still maintain this mentality of, "Ah, it's just hard to understand. It's going to all work out. God's sovereign. Believers are going to make it. You know, I'll get to that down the road kind of thing. But Paul is taking young believers here and he says, all right, let's talk about the Antichrist. You need to know about the Antichrist. You need to know about what's coming in the future. This was serious stuff to Paul. Because he felt like if you don't know, if you don't know, you may possibly be deceived by this and fall away. Paul recognized that Scripture, while it teaches you don't lose your salvation, Scripture always teaches that God puts warnings in place so that we don't walk away from the faith. So is it true to say that Christians will never walk away from the faith? Absolutely. Is it true that we need to be warned so that we don't walk away from the faith? Absolutely. That's how God perseveres us. The way that God makes sure that we make it to the end is he puts warning signs in front of us to keep us on the right path. And Paul says, I've got to set up the warning signs so that you're not deceived by what the man of lawlessness wants to do. There's a question that gets asked a lot of times, can Jesus come at any time? Can Jesus come at any time? Now, depending on where you stand with the... Belief in a rapture, um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I believe that Jesus has chosen to not come at any time. I think what he's saying here, what Paul's saying here is that it's incorrect to say, well, Jesus can't come. It's, it's, it's incorrect for us to say that Jesus can't do something. Jesus can do whatever he wants. But what we have in this passage is that Jesus is saying, I am choosing not to come until two things at least happen. Until there's a rebellion and until the man of lawlessness is on the scene. So if we're, if we're talking about the second coming, Jesus cannot come because he has chosen not to come at just any point. That's Paul's point here. You know the day of the Lord has not arrived yet because two things have yet to happen. There's to be a rebellion. There's to be a man of lawlessness. Because of the concern that Paul places on this, eschatology must become... It must become foundational to the faith that we pass on to others. It must become foundational to the faith we pass on to others. If we're going to be disciple makers, and that's what we want to be here at Sovereign Hope, if you guys are going to make disciples, if you're going to meet with younger believers and teach them how to follow Jesus, you have got to pass on to them an understanding of the end times. As we talk about this local outreach, wanting to build relationships, whether it's, you know, Downtown at McGuire's, whether it's at the park, wherever it is. Somebody responds in faith. We're talking in our men's group. We've got to be more faithful to start calling people to faith and repentance. When that starts happening, and we begin to pass on truth to these new believers that have not grown up in church. 
we cannot fail to pass on to them an understanding of the end times. Paul sets the example for us. He says it's absolutely crucial that you understand this. Because we see what happens when, unbel- when, when new believers don't have a clear understanding. They become shaken in their faith. Worldly things spring up and they wander off. Persecution potentially springs up and they wander off. They're shaken in their faith. And Paul says the way to solidify new believers is to give them a clear understanding of what the end is going to look like. Now, we can disagree about this, but as I read this passage, it seems very clear to me that we will be here for the time of the Antichrist because of the intense warnings that Paul gives to this church. The reason I say that is because in verse 1 he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers, don't be quickly shaken. To me, Paul is setting the standard for what he's about to talk about. He's saying, concerning the time when Jesus comes and we are gathered to him. Now, if we're reading this in context, we've already read 1 Thessalonians 4. that talks about Jesus coming back and uh, people that are alive at the time of Jesus' coming, being caught up with him in the clouds. We meet the Lord in the air. We meet our loved ones that were Christians who've already gone there in the air right before we get there. 1 Thessalonians 4 describes us being gathered to Jesus. He gave them that teaching because they were discouraged about loved ones that had died. What happens to our loved ones? Paul says they're going to be gathered together with Jesus when he comes back. Now, people that believe in a rapture say that that's talking about the rapture. And that chapter 5 is about the day of the Lord. But Paul really seems to bridge these two together to where it's not two separate events. That there's one coming in mind. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers, basically, don't be alarmed or scared that the day of the Lord has come. He's not dividing these two things up. He's saying we get gathered together at the day of the Lord. And don't be scared that that's already happened because it hasn't. The rebellion has to happen. The man of lawlessness has to happen. Now, again, we can disagree about this, but I would caution you in simply disagreeing because you've heard something different. The more I study this passage, the more relevant I feel like making a decision about the rapture is for the church. Let me just give you this scenario, how this plays out. You say, hey, I'm holding true to the rapture. Like, there's a rapture. I'm not going to be here for the tribulation. I'm not going to be here for the Antichrist. Let's say that's not true. And then, boom, tribulation happens. The Antichrist happens. What type of reaction to our faith will that cause if we're here for those things when we went years and years and years and years believing we would not be here for those things? Paul seems to be saying, get ready for this. Be on guard for this. Don't be deceived when this happens. And he's, he's implying that this deception is not going to be something maybe that's just blatantly obvious. That it may sound, I mean, it's going to be, have to be good enough for the majority of this world to buy into it. There's very little that the majority of this world buys into together. Even some of the most charismatic leaders that our world has known, there have been people that have said, man, I don't like that guy. This is worldwide mass deception. Paul says, you be on guard against it. I mean, he's talking about this to me 
it seems in a way that these guys need to know about this because they're going to be there for it. Now, again, we don't have to agree on that. But my encouragement to you would be don't believe in something just because you've heard it. Believe it strongly. Be convicted by it by Scripture, not by a class that you took, not by a movie that you saw. It's got big implications for us. It's got big. I, I as one who feels like I'm going to be here, I want to be prepared for the Antichrist. I have more urgency than someone who says I'm not going to be here for the Antichrist. So I would just encourage you to be faithful to study. Be faithful to study this. Be faithful to dialogue with others about it. Seek a clear scriptural understanding about it. I put in my notes that if this is true, if the warning was serious for them, how much more serious is it for us now that we are closer to this time? Romans thirteen eleven says, we are closer now to our salvation than when we first believed. So if Paul was concerned about this church and their reaction potentially to an antichrist down the road, how much more concerned would he be for us now knowing that, wow, we are definitely closer to it than what I thought we were back in Thessalonica? You guys definitely need to be on guard against this. Next in your notes, I think this is important to to note. We cannot stop this evil from coming, nor should we really want, because it's part of God's plan. And this is this is where I have uh, have difficulty with like the post tribulational view, not post tribulational, but the why can't I think of it? Post millennial view. Post millennial view says that everything's going to get better. That we're going to evangelize this world to where an entire world becomes Christian. I don't know how a post-millennialist recon- reconciles that with this passage where it says, nope, the whole world is going to be deceived, basically. And we can be okay with that. It- it's not our goal as a church to stop the Antichrist, to stop the great deception. It's not our, it's not our, it's not our goal to, to keep whatever is restraining from the Antichrist in place. We can be comforted by the fact that evil is going to be done away with, that this is going to happen, and we can be okay with that because it's part of God's plan. We're going to see that more in just a minute, why that's so important. We can't stop this evil from coming, nor should we really want to. All evil intents will be devastated in the end. All evil attempts will be devastated in the end. That should be encouragement to us as evil presses in on us. If we are here for a tribulation time, if we do start to experience increased persecution and tribulation here in America, the encouragement that Paul is offering is that as evil presses in on you, and it may press hard on you, he says you stay faithful because in the end, evil will be devastated. Evil is going to be devastated. Every attempt at evil will be devastated at the return of Jesus. Now the point of agreement, depending on how we believe this all plays out, the point of agreement that we always want to come back to is that Jesus is coming. We can disagree about how many more times Jesus is coming, but the point of agreement is certainly that Jesus is coming. All right, now to give you an overall picture, overall big picture of what's going on in this passage, kind of spoil the ending, give it all to you up front. Then we'll go back and break it down in more detail. Paul's reason for writing. Paul's reason for writing. Number one, to show God's sovereign control over evil. To show God's sovereign control 
over evil. As we look at this passage more in depth, I want you to understand that this, what is contained for us in these 12 verses, is the absolute greatest, best, most thought out, most well-planned, most wicked, evil, destructive plan that Satan could ever come up with. I mean, this is it. This is, this is his go-to. This is, this is what he's putting everything on. His absolute greatest, best, most wicked, most well-thought-out plan that he could ever concoct is what he wants to bring upon this earth at the end. This worldwide deception through an incarnate evil. As close as he can get to incarnating himself like God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit did through Jesus, the Trinity through Jesus, he is God incarnate. He is the man that is the God. He is God in flesh. The closest that Satan can get to that is what he plans to do with this man of lawlessness. As close as he can get to incarnating himself as, as the evil one is what this man will be. The most evil plan that he could possibly concoct. And the humor behind this is that God is absolutely in control of every part of this plan. His plan to deceive, his plan to wreck everything is all part of God's sovereign plan. For Jesus to return and make things right. He's completely in control of this evil. It's not a counter plan by God. It's not that Satan unveils this thing and God's like, whoa, got to get down there and take care of business. Like, wow, he's really bringing it today. This isn't a 15 round boxing match that Jesus wins at the very end. It's not a ninth inning rally in a baseball game where Jesus comes through with the big clutch hit at the end to win. This is complete devastation. This is a complete rout. Complete blowout of the absolute greatest evil team that Satan could ever come up with. Paul's saying, You be encouraged by this, that this is coming, this mass rebellion, this man of lawlessness that is going to do signs and wonders and satanic evils that's going to convince a lot of people to worship him. You be encouraged because what the passage says is that when Jesus shows up, it just stops. It just stops. It's a complete rout. In your notes, the greatest plan of evil cannot be executed until God says it's okay. The greatest plan of evil our world has ever known, ever seen, it can't even be executed until God says it's okay. It says... Verse 6, you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Satan can't even do his plan until God says, okay, now you can do it. I mean, he's ready. He's, 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 he's all set up for it. He's ready to do it. And God's restraining him. God's saying, no, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. It's not the right time. I think there's allusions here to what Galatians has to say. When Galatians says, in the, when the fullness of time had come, that's when Jesus came. Born of a virgin. 
born to Mary to save this world from its sin. When the fullness of time had come, when the absolute best time possible came, God the Father sent Jesus to this earth. And now what we have here is is Paul saying, when the fullness of time comes, when the absolute best time possible for God's glory comes, that's when God will say, now you can unleash your plan. He can't even do it until God says it's okay. Secondly, the greatest leader of evil will be killed by a single breath. The greatest leader of evil our world has ever known will be killed by a single breath. It says when the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Not even a fight that takes place. I mean, the absolute best that Satan can come up with is completely wiped away with a single breath. There's no fight. There's no, there's no standing against him. Jesus shows up and it's over. And God receives the glory for that because the best, the absolute best that a cosmic evil could come up with can't stand in the presence of our Jesus. It gets better. The greatest deception of evil... The greatest deception of evil our world has ever developed will accomplish absolutely nothing. The greatest deception of evil our world has ever developed will accomplish absolutely nothing. We're going to see this in more detail, but ultimately God sets it up where only the unbelievers believe this stuff. The only people that believe this stuff are people that are on their way to hell anyways. It's not that Satan shows up and begins to rip true Christians from the church, changes their mind about their faith, the Holy Spirit vacates their life and they lose their salvation and now followers of Antichrist. This great deception accomplishes absolutely Nothing. Look what it says in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. I mean, if there's any doubt that this guy is special, Paul lets us know here that he comes with all the power of Satan. Now, we can debate how much was Satan involved in some of these other world leaders that have been evil. But it's clear here, Satan is right here with this guy. He is motivating everything that he's doing. He's giving him the power to do these things. He's coming with false signs and wonders, all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Paul says the ones that are going to believe this are people that don't believe the gospel anyways. It accomplishes absolutely nothing. He doesn't add to his numbers even by one single person. He doesn't steal anybody away from God's family. He doesn't take anybody whose name is written in the book of life before the foundations of the world. He doesn't get God to erase anybody's name because they become unfaithful and start following this Antichrist. This deception is for people that are already perishing. He simply gathers together people that were already condemned. People that were not going to be saved. The deception really results in deceiving no one when it comes to an eternal state. These are people that were perishing anyways. The greatest deception that Satan can come up with ultimately deceives nobody that's part of God's family. And lastly, in your notes, the greatest effort of our the greatest effort of evil our world has ever witnessed 
will be completely frustrated. The greatest effort of evil will be completely frustrated. It says that when Jesus shows up, he will slay this man of lawlessness with his breath and bring to nothing everything that he has attempted to do. Simply by showing up at the party. He just stops it. He just stops it. He gathers his people to him. Those that have remained faithful, those that are truly Christians, he gathers to him. And this may be part of God's working out where he divides the wheat and the tares. He divides the sheep and the goats. He's simply putting them where they belong. It's not that the Antichrist has been able to recruit sheep. He's not recruiting the wheat to come over here with the tares. It's simply God's way of dividing these two people groups. It's basically saying, hey, if you're on my team, you know, go ahead and come over here. If you're on that team, go ahead and go over there. There's no changing of teams that takes place here. Nobody's being deceived to leave Christ. They're being further deceived because they were already deceived. They had already denied the truth like Romans 1 talks about. They had already began to worship the creation rather than the creator. They had already given themselves over to this lie. God just allows this deception to become even more so in their life so that his righteous judgment can be executed upon them. And I put in my notes the greatest trap, and that's what we're calling this series, the greatest trap of all time. Because the greatest trap of all time by the devil turns out to be the greatest trap of all time by God. Satan believes that he has concocted this trap where he's got a man of lawlessness to lead people into this trap where he will now condemn them to hell. But ultimately, as we're seeing here, God has set everything up for the fullness of time to allow this Antichrist to come on the scene so that he receives the greatest glory, so that Satan is completely stopped in front of everybody. It's God's trap, not Satan's trap. God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. And the trap is on Satan. The trap is on the Antichrist. The trap is on anybody who tries to get any Christian to follow in this ultimate coming rebellion. God sets the trap. He captures evil and he does away with it. He devastates it. That's where Paul's going with this passage. To show his sovereign control over evil. Secondly though, Paul wants to re-anchor this church in truth. He wants to re-anchor them in truth. He says in verse 2, Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That word quickly shaken, the Greek word, the, the, the common usage for it was a boat that had become unanchored. That it, that it had come loose. It had separated from the dock. Or it had broken loose from his anchor at sea and it was now drifting and being tossed to and fro. This church is no longer anchored in truth. It's broken free. Now it's being turned around by this false doctrine that was circulating. That the day of the Lord had come. Paul writes to re-anchor this church. To, to, to remind them of the truth that they already know so they won't be continued to be shaken by a circulating false teaching. The church had become loosened and unanchored and this teaching was most likely being attributed to Paul. It's probably people who were reinterpreting Paul's first letter and trying to tell this church, oh, that's already happened or that's happening right now and you've missed it. This is, this is something that we see happen 
in other parts of Scripture, in Second Peter 3.16, Peter addresses this. Verse 15, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter says this happens with Paul's writings. People that are ignorant and unstable, they like to take what he says in his letters and then twist them and make stuff up. Peter says, don't let that happen. Like, like, hold true to what Paul says. Well, that's probably what we're here in this Thessalonica church. Somebody was reinterpreting what Paul had tried to tell this church already. And they were attributing this false teaching to Paul. Well, this is what Paul meant by this. And Paul's warning them not to give in to that. There's differences of opinion about what they're actually believing here. The church clearly, though, had become confused about Jesus' return and the gathering of the church to him. I mean, that's why Paul starts off by saying, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. There's some type of confusion about this. Matthew 24, 31 talks about us being gathered. It says that when Jesus comes, he sends out his angels to the four corners of the earth to gather his elect. That's the gathering of us to him. Paul lumps this church in there. Again, why I don't feel like these guys are going to be gone for this, because he lumps them into this and talks about them being gathered to Jesus. Some people would say that they believe they've missed being gathered to him. They've missed the rapture or they've missed this being caught up together in the, in the sky with him. Others would say that what they're really confused about, they feel like the day of the Lord is happening right then or it's about to happen, like on the verge of happening. And that's what led some of them to quit their jobs, which we'll see in verse 3. Some of them have become idle and they're not working anymore. So there's two possible confusions. One, they think it's already happened. Secondly, they think it's happening right now, and so they're, they're not doing anything anymore. They've kind of left their uh, daily responsibilities like we've talked about before. We're not clear what the issue is exactly, because it says that don't be confused that the day of the Lord has come. Well, you could take that, uh, that tense there as either it came in the past or it's coming like right now type of thing. So Paul's wanting to correct that thinking, that the day of the Lord is not upon them like they're being told. There's also the possibility that the false teaching was circulating about a spiritual resurrection. That there was no real resurrection to look for anymore, that it was a spiritual resurrection. You would get that idea maybe from reading Colossians 2, 11 through 15. Uh, Colossians 2, 11 through 15. It says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in his baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. It's possible that people were perverting this spiritual teaching of resurrection, that when we get saved, we're buried with Christ in his death, we're raised to walk in newness of life, that they were saying, well, that's the resurrection, that's already happened. There's not, we're not, all this talk about new bodies, all this talk about graves being opened, that's fairy tales. You guys are crazy, like the resurrection's already happened, quit looking for it, be content with what you got. The Jehovah's Witnesses have, have taught this in the past, and I don't know if they still teach this, but in, has this ever come up in your discussions with them? In um, October 1st, 1914, the leader of the Jehovah's Witness had been making some 
faulty predictions about Jesus coming back. This was his last attempt. Hey, it's supposed to happen, and then it didn't. And so instead of predicting another date, he just came up with this. Oh, he did come. It just came invisibly. We didn't see it, and it's not going to happen again. You, you, like it's over with, so quit looking for it. So there's been false teachings like this that have, that have been around. And this may be what was going around with this church, that there wasn't a resurrection to look for. There wasn't going to be a big gathering that we had misunderstood it, that it was just a spiritual thing. Whatever the actual false teaching is, Paul is writing this passage to combat that and to correct it. The preceding discussion seeks to relieve this concern by reminding the church that they have truth they need to believe in. Now, going back to 2 Thessalonians, what we see here, Paul clearly lays out two events that have to happen before the second coming. He says, you know the day of the Lord hasn't come because these two things haven't happened. Now, again, if there's a rapture where we are not here for the second coming and not here for these two events, because anybody that believes in a rapture, for the most part, would say either this happens a rapture would happen in the middle of this or it happens completely before this. This, this. this teaching here really doesn't offer hope to this church if they're gone for these events. Their concern is that they've missed something. Hey, we thought something was going to happen and it's not happening the way we thought. Paul writes to say, hey, it hasn't happened yet because you haven't seen the rebellion. You haven't seen the Antichrist. He hasn't come on and done his thing yet. If they weren't going to be here for this, you would expect him to offer a different type of hope, a different type of encouragement. You would expect him to say, you're still here. It hasn't happened yet because you're still here. He says it hasn't happened yet because these two things haven't happened yet. It's kind of like when we give directions. You would say, you might call somebody and say, hey, I think I I I might have missed it. I think I might have missed the turn. Um, can you help me out here? Well, if you pass this and this, no, I haven't gotten there yet. Okay, well, then you haven't gotten to the turn yet. He gives them some preceding markers to look for so that they know when the day of the Lord's supposed to happen. Hey, have I missed it yet? Well, have you seen these two things? No. Okay, then you, then you haven't missed it yet. You still need to see those two things before that's going to come, before that's going to happen. And that's the encouragement that he gives to them. The day of the Lord hasn't happened yet because you haven't seen these two things happen yet. Now, we'll tell you that from what I've been able to see, that most people that believe in the rapture see the rapture in this passage with the word. Let me find the verse. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The Greek word there is apostasia, apostasy can mean departure or falling away. So some would like to take that and say, the day of the Lord will not come unless the rapture comes first and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. We'll talk more next week about what that word really means, but that word in Greek is never used in a positive sense. It's never used in a good departure. It's always used in a walking away in a rebellion type Situation, which is why I think the English translators chose in the ESV to translate it rebellion. We'll look at that more uh, next week. The last reason that Paul writes is to provide encouragement, not a discord from the Antichrist. To provide encouragement, not a discourse on the Antichrist. 
which means we shouldn't expect to get all our questions answered here. When I, I can tell you right now, we're not going to identify the Antichrist this week, next week, or any coming weeks. There, there's no keys to identifying the Antichrist here. Um, I think we would be making a mistake to even speculate who the Antichrist could be. Because it's just not given to us. All right, how we're going to outline this passage for the rest of today and then next week. Um, we're going to look at the time of restraint, which is what I believe we're in right now. We're going to look at the time of rebellion, which is when the rebellion and the Antichrist do their thing. And then we're going to look at the time of retribution, which is when Jesus comes to execute his rightful judgment in all this. Okay, so time of restraint, time of rebellion. Time of retribution. I think Paul highlights all three of these in our passage for us. So we're going to start with the time of restraint today. The time of restraint. What Paul is describing is that we, this church, and I believe we still live in a time where Satan's efforts to deceive the world are being restrained. He says that. He says that that, that Satan cannot do what he wants to do because something is restraining his efforts. Something is withholding his efforts. Now I want you to turn to Revelation 20 because I think this passage parallels this Really, really well. You don't have to believe this. A lot of people would say this Revelation 20 happens after, happens after 1 Thessalonians 2. But if we're looking at worldwide deception, Antichrist, I really think this describes like the greatest evil of all time. To me, it's hard to argue that Satan would be given a second chance to bring this type of attack against Christ, which you see at the end of Revelation 20. Verse 1 of Revelation 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, I would say that what that's describing there is what we are seeing right now. Now, again, you don't have to agree with that. But what I see there is parallel to what we're seeing in 1 Thessalonians 2, that there's a restraining that is happening. Now, does that mean that Satan's not doing anything on this earth? No. It doesn't mean that. But Jesus also alludes to this when he says that he has bound Satan so that he can go into his house and take everything from him. When he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, I've bound the strong man. I've bound the owner of the house so that I can go in and take freely from him. It's an image of how he takes what Satan took from him in the garden, essentially. Like when he deceived man and man walked away from Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going in and taking everybody back that I want on my side. I've bound him so that he can't deceive them any longer. I think what's happening here in Revelation is that Satan is being bound. He's being restrained from doing what he wants to do to a degree. But even Paul says, as much as whatever's restraining the the, the Antichrist, whatever's restraining Satan... The mystery work of lawlessness is still at work. There's still Antichrist working right now. So even that restraining doesn't keep everything back. Um, If we skip down to verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather to them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed 
To me, that's parallel of what, what we have seen going on in 1 Thessalonians 2. When, when evil begins to press on, press in on God's people, that the breath comes from heaven and extinguishes all these efforts. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of the fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see this type of rebellion happen at the end of Revelation 20 where Satan gathers his forces for this battle against Jesus and you see it devastated. To me, I think it parallels what's going on here in First Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians 2. But if we go back to our text, there's a couple things that we can see here. First, Satan's plans are already active. So whether you believe we will be here for the Antichrist or not, we can all agree... Satan's plans are already active. Paul tells us, even though that the Antichrist is being restrained, even though the man of lawlessness is being restrained, verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already at work. The time has started. The time for guarding is now. Satan has gotten the ball rolling on his plans. Now, he can't execute the plans but the ball is rolling, which means our time to be guarded, to protect ourselves, is now. We must not be shaken, Paul says, by spirits. And then I'm going to use application for us today, sermons or books. He says in verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Paul's throwing out all kinds of caution here. He says, even if a spirit shows up and tells you something contrary to what you've heard us teach you in the word, you don't believe it. So even if someone were to claim to to speak from God and say, here is new revelation, new information, he says, you don't believe it. Don't be shaken by that. Don't be shaken by a spoken word. Don't let somebody's sermon all of a sudden shake what the Bible has to say. Don't let a written letter, don't let a book that comes out, some new book that, that, that starts hitting the shelves in Christian bookstores, don't let it shake in what you know God's word to say. He says, don't be deceived, because this is how they will be deceived. This is how they will be deceived. This is how false teachers deceive. They leave the church and they write this kind of junk. They talk about this kind of junk. It deceives people. Paul says, don't be deceived by it. Don't be shaken when you know it contradicts what we told you before. He's constantly drawing them back to what he's already told them. Remember what we've taught you. It's important for us to realize that the deception is real and it's satanically powerful. Guard against teachings today that attack the foundations of our faith. Verse 3 says, let no one deceive you in any way. That's a call to action for you. Tyson and Adam and I talk all the time about how as elders we have to be called to action to protect you guys from false teaching. That we can't ever have it going on here, but that we also have to protect you from false teaching that's going on out there. But the call to action is also for you, that you're not to be deceived. That you're to be in the word. That you're to be anchored on the truth and not shaken by things that pop up in, in Christian culture. It's real and it's satanic and we need to be cautious about it. Antichrist and false teachers are already prevalent. His plans have already started. First John two eighteen. I told you that first John or John's the one that mentions the Antichrist. In first John two eighteen, children it is the last hour, as you've heard the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, 
But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. He describes what ultimately antichrists are. They, they appear to be part of the church, and then they leave the church, and they deceive people to leave the church with them. And we'll look more at this next week, but I believe the antichrist, this, this man that's coming, will come from within our midst in the church. And he will deceive false believers within the church to leave the church with him. That's the rebellion. That's the apostasy. They fall away from the faith. They fall away from the faith, which means they have to be seemingly inside of the faith to fall away. And Jesus promises that this would happen, that people would fall away from the faith. The Antichrist is going to be the one that instigates that. But even now, John says, we have people that are Antichrist. They were part of us, but then they left us. And now they're teaching people to leave as well. They're teaching people to leave as well. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness is coming. There are already workers of lawlessness that are here. And they're even deceived themselves. Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Verse 10, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I mean, Jesus says this deception is going to be so real, so good, that if it were possible, believers would walk away from the faith for this. It's going to be that intense, that deceptive. Antichrist and false teachers are already prevalent. We need to be on guard against it. Second John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Even John says, look, I know you can't lose your salvation, but he's telling them, the way you're not going to lose your salvation is you're not going to be deceived by this because you're going to be on guard against it. I'm making you aware of this, and God's going to use that to keep you faithful. That's our task, to make younger believers in this church aware of what is coming so they don't walk away from the faith. God uses our discipleship, our instruction, to keep people clinging, anchored to the truth. Number two, Satan's plans cannot climax. Two things we see here in the time of restraint. His plans have started, but his plans cannot climax. He cannot bring about his plans of evil through the man of lawlessness until, until Jesus lets him. God's still got to get permission. He's still got to get permission. He's still got to go to the sovereign ruler of this universe and say, Is it okay if I do my evil plan? 
Can I get your permission to do this? It really downplays how evil he can be when he has to go get permission to be evil. But that's the, Paul, that's the picture that Paul gives us here. You're not going to do anything until Jesus says you can. The efforts are restrained, but they're not completely withheld. There's deception occurring, but not on the same massive scale as it will be. We have a partial binding of Satan's attempts here. He says he can't do what he wants to do, but he can do some of it. That, that mystery, that, that work of lawlessness is going on. There's little Antichrist. There may be guys that Satan wants to make the Antichrist, but his power with them is even limited. So Satan is allowed to do some of his plan, but he can't bring it to climax. He can't bring it and execute it the way that he wants to because it's being withstrained. I think some of the deception that we see occurring even today within our church is the increase in the rise in acceptance of homosexual marriage in the church. Homosexual ministers that are now being ordained in what we call churches around our country. It's becoming more and more tolerated, more and more okay. It's a description of lawlessness where we're walking away from what God says in his law. We're reinterpreting it. Do what you want. Live the way that you want to. This is the type of deception that is occurring right now. A worldliness that's increasing in the church. An acceptance of sin within the church. A lack of church discipline in the church. These are the deceptions that Satan is leading right now. Not on a massive scale yet, but there's pockets of it that are starting to spring up more and more. Thankfully, though, for now, there is a restrainer. There is a restrainer. Now, there's a lot of debate about who the restrainer is. If you want to take down, I ran out of time to give you all these notes, so if you want to jot some of this stuff down, you can. I'm going to tell you up front, there, there's not a clear answer about who or what is restraining the Antichrist. Um, there's speculation. I'll give you the most popular speculations. I'll give you my perspective on what I think's restraining the plans of Satan. Some would say the church. Some would say the church. This would be those who hold to the rapture view that when the church is now taken away, that Antichrist can now do what he wants to do. Um, which is hard to reconcile with the fact that Revelation 7 says an innumerable amount of people get saved during the time of tribulation. So if the church leaves, there's just a, another big church that happens right behind it. So you would think that that would still restrain the Antichrist from doing what he wants to do. Preaching of the gospel is sometimes viewed here as the restrainer. Um, government, it was held in the early church that it was the Roman Empire that restrained the Antichrist, because he's a man of lawlessness. And, and Paul talks about this in Romans, that, that government and law is ordained by God to keep evil in check. Right? That, that law punishes evil, rewards good. And so a lot of people, and I think it's possible here, a lot of people would say that government is what keeps this evil at bay. That, that nobody can come in and, and, and make himself the god of this world because there's too many governments that would resist that. So there's going to take, it's going to take a breakdown of government, a restraining of the Antichrist to go away that would allow him to come on the scene and do what he wants to do. Um, we're starting to get more along what I would think would be possible. Um, some people would say the Holy Spirit. Again, some would say that at the rapture the Holy Spirit leaves this earth, that we return to a pre-Pentecost type setting. 
Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and starts indwelling believers in a different way than he did in the Old Testament. Some would say that, that we go back to Old Testament times where the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell believers in the same way and that he's gone and the restraining is now gone too. I don't believe that, but I believe that the Holy Spirit could be viewed as the restrainer here. Not that he's going to leave this earth, it's just that he'll let go of the restraint. Um, I tend to think that it's more an angel. Um, I do think that it probably takes something supernatural to stop something supernatural. So we're talking about stopping Satan. I think it takes something supernatural to stop Satan. I think if we're going off the illusion in Revelation 20, Revelation 20 says an angel comes down from heaven and binds Satan, puts him in the pit. Um, Also in Daniel chapter 10, Revelation chapter 12, we see Michael, the archangel, doing battle with satanic forces. So I'll go even as far to say that I think it could really be Michael, the archangel, that's with straining Satan's attempts here. It's far more consistent to see Satan the opposite of Michael. Too often we see Satan as the opposite of God. It's incorrect to put them on the same platform. Satan's a creation. He can't be the opposite of God. He's not the opposite evil of the, op- of the, of the good God. He's the opposite of Michael the archangel. He's an angel. Michael's an angel. They're opposites. One's good, one's evil. So I, see, I think it could be very possible that Michael the archangel is the one that's restraining it. In the end, it really doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't change really anything. The fact is it's being restrained. It's being restrained for God's purposes. Um, when the perfect, we've already said this, when the perfect time comes, God will remove the restrainer to complete his final purposes for creation. By restraining the plans of Satan, God also willingly restrains the return of Jesus. So we've said that already, that Jesus has chosen not to come at any time because he's not allowing the Antichrist to come. This does not negate the surprise aspect of his coming, though, as the church readily thinks these events are always about to happen. I mean, all throughout history, you've got churches standing up saying, so-and-so is the Antichrist, it's all about to go down. So even when it actually does happen, there's still going to be the surprise effect because people today are saying that so, so-and-so is the Antichrist. Everybody's leaving the church. And if it were to happen today, we would be surprised probably. Um, so it doesn't negate, because sometimes people say, well, if you take away the fact that Jesus can come at any time, then it, it negates the surprise aspect that seems to go all through the New Testament. It doesn't negate that. It's saying that he's not going to come until this happens first, but we don't really know maybe fully when that's happening and, and what that actually looks like. But even still, when it does happen... I think this surprise effect will definitely still be there for the unbelievers because they're part of that great trap where they think they're doing the right thing, following the right God, only to have everything come crashing down next to them. All right, so today, just wanted to give you a big overview of of what the point of the passage is. That evil is completely controlled by God. The absolute greatest evil our world has ever known, ever will know, will be devastated with, with the greatest ease. When Jesus returns. And Paul's point is to stay faithful. To, to not grow discouraged. Don't be shaken by false teachings. This is the truth. That Jesus is coming to stop all of this. He draws their attention to what the here and now looks like. You live in a time when Satan has started his plan. It's restrained though. It's not taking full effect. Something's restraining it. Most likely something supernatural. Either God or one of his agents restraining his efforts to be fully visible, fully deceptive. 
but it doesn't it doesn't cause us to be any less concerned because there is a work of ungodliness and lawlessness happening right now that is deceptive enough to lead people astray. So it should not cause us to let our guard down and say, oh, Antichrist isn't here yet. We don't have to worry about that. We do. We have to be on guard for it, and we have to be preparing other people in our church for it as well. So the application for us today, and again, next week we'll look in depth at the rebellion and the Antichrist, look at some issues with that. But the application for today, we need to prepare now so that we're not deceived and so others are not deceived. Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter's kind of pouring out his heart to his disciples. He says, I'm about to die. He says, I'm going to make every effort for you to always remember the things that I taught you. So that you never forget them, so that you never grow shaken when you start hearing new stuff, that you, you hold true to what you learn from me as your discipler. We have that responsibility as we try to make disciples, to pass on truth, to keep passing it on until it's clung to so tightly that somebody never lets go of it. We need to be prepared, and we need to prepare others for what's coming. Secondly, we need to recognize, identify, and address antichrist-type behavior and actions so that we avoid deception. God says it's there, so we need to identify antichrist-type behavior and actions and stay clear from it. I think the greatest, the greatest encouragement that God gives us beyond the gift of the Holy Spirit, but the encouragement that he gives us as Christians is that we need to faithfully gather together so that we are there to participate in the great gathering one day. Hebrews 10.25. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold to the truth without wavering like we're unanchored like a ship. For he who promises faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That word for um, meet together, it's the same Greek word for uh, what Paul says in Second Thessalonians about us being gathered to him. I think we need to view our times together as a church as many gatherings, little gatherings for that great gathering one day when we are gathered in the sky to be with Jesus forever. We need to be faithful to gather as God's people as much as possible now because in doing that, it encourages us to stay faithful so that we participate in that great gathering one day. And then lastly, and we'll close with this. I think we need to be faithfully drawing others to Christ, recognizing there's coming a day where it may not be possible anymore. We need to be faithfully drawing people to Christ now before there comes a day where it's possible that we won't be able to do that anymore. I think the way this passage reads that when the Antichrist comes, that full deception starts to set in. I don't have any proof for this, but it's very possible that, like I said earlier, in the same way that we don't lose anybody from our team, 
We may not gain anybody to our team during that time. I think his reign is short-lived. I don't think he's around long. I think his deception is great. And if we are here for that, it may be that we are unable to draw anybody to Christ during that time because full deception has set in. And God is here now to punish by drawing these perishing people to the Antichrist, clearing the way for Jesus to return. That ought to be an alarm to us that the restraint, I believe, is for the purpose of salvation. The reason the Antichrist can't come and do what he wants to do is because God's not done saving people. It says that in other passages of Scripture, that Jesus delays his coming so that there's opportunity for repentance. And it may be when the Antichrist is revealed right before Jesus is coming that that time for repentance stops. We need to be mindful of that. We need to call people to repentance. All right, I'd encourage you to read through it on your own this week. Spend some time studying it on your own this week as well so that you can come prepared to learn more next week. We can dialogue a little bit about it at the end if we need to. Answer any questions. Maybe discuss some things that maybe you came up with on your own in your own study that you're confused about. Uh, We can look at that again together. What I want to leave you with today, again, is that we can be encouraged that Jesus is coming to stop every evil effort that Satan wants to put into play. And that ought to bring us encouragement on a daily basis because it was meant to bring encouragement to the Thessalonians. They would no longer be shaken. They'd be anchored into the truth that Jesus was completely in control of everything and that even Satan's best attempts had to be allowed by God. And we'll see even more next week that ultimately God is, is, is not just allowing it but participating in it and how the whole thing plays out. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sobhope.org. Again, that's www.sobhope.org.